Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. All right, Gil, welcome to Strategic Financial Leadership. I'm excited to have you as a guest today and learn more about you, and especially I want to learn more about your book. So thank you for your time and for joining me. Great. Thanks for having me. So let's start from the beginning because I I like doing that. I like understanding people's journey. So you graduated with a degree in economics from the Stephen F. Austin State University. Um, Were you always interested in economics and finance or how did you choose this field? I was always interested in math. And so anything that would allow me to apply math to my um, career was something that I was interested in. I actually went to Stephen F. Austin because I was planning on going to medical school and uh, chemistry and I did not get along and economics and I got along great. So I switched to the business school and the rest is history. I hear that a lot from guests. In, in fact, the, the last person I interviewed said the same exact thing that he was going to go to medical school and then he changed his mind. How do you think finance feels about being a second choice to it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually turned out quite a bit better for me than being a doctor, economically speaking. You know, I don't have to get up in the middle of the night and deal with too many issues like doctors do and uh, with what's happening with our healthcare system and the limitations on how much money they can make. I'm in a quite a bit more lucrative field than most doctors. So I'm, I'm happy about my choice. That's great. So I know you're, you're big uh, into sports and activities that involve precision. Uh, So, you know, you were a a billiard champion. You like golf, archery, darts, ski, marksmanship. What is it about these sports that you like? Is it this idea of focusing on precision on, on narrowing in um, on things, or do you just like these sports and uh, tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah, I think it's partly the, my German heritage gives me a um, sort of an engineer backbone, if you will. I also have 2010 vision. uh, So my ophthalmologist of 40, who's been in practice for 45 years, says I have the best sight he's ever seen. Uh, So it possibly has to do with that, despite the fact that these are just readers. I have uh, presbyopia, like everybody, 62 years old. Anyhow, so having good eyesight and just having an appreciation for things that are precise. I love very high-end shotguns, rifles, anything that's precise, I am going to like it. And so I don't know, it's just something about the way I'm built, uh, I dig things that are precise. So math and uh, precision activities, that, that's interesting. Do you think you have to be good at math to be successful in the world of finance? No, I think there are people who are really good at accounting, which I'm terrible at accounting, and I seem to have done just fine. Uh, I think there are people out there who rely on their calculator, which I do too. You know, Once I get past about five or six digits, 
but I, I generalize with my math. So I do mental math by generalizing approximately the number that I'm looking for. And that has been super helpful when I buy municipal bonds and other things. I can look at the statistics of the bond and pretty much calculate the yield in my head. It's a very helpful strategy to have. And I, I don't know where I learned to generalize about math, uh, but that's, that's how I've you know, chosen to view it. And it's been super helpful to me to be able to have command of it uh, people view you more as an expert when your math is really prompt and they can tell that your your mind is quick. Uh, so it's a credibility enhancer, even though the math, the way I calculate it, doesn't have to be exact. Uh, in the end, it does, but just for decision-making purposes, all I'm doing is generalizing about choices. So that's how I do the math. And I think that's interesting because you know, I, I see that a lot with executives, especially those that are very successful at understanding the story behind the numbers. You yeah. know, they're, they're not going to get into the weeds and, and understand to the penny or to the dollar how certain things are trending, but they could look at things. And like you said, just from a general standpoint, they could understand, okay, are my cost of goods sold too high? Is my overhead running too high here? What are these different ratios? They seem kind of out of whack and they, they can understand things from a high level and then dive in with uh, more precision if needed. And I, I think that's really important. Otherwise, it's easy to get lost within the numbers and in the weeds. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But I think another place that it's probably even more valuable is in the midst of negotiations. Mm-hmm. When you're in the midst of a negotiation and somebody throws an alternative out, if you understand how to generalize about math and all you're really trying to do is get a general, you know, is this 10% better than my other choice? the ability to know right off the top of your head, whether that's a better or worse situation, it's really helpful. I have seen people try to negotiate with me where the terms that they're offering me in their resorted math is actually worse than the deal we just talked about five minutes ago. And it is so powerful to be able to call them out on the spot and say, I've already done the calculations of the various iterations of what you're proposing. You just went backwards in our negotiation. You know, We're going to have to change direction here. Uh, that's a very powerful thing to be able to have at your disposal. Absolutely. I could, I could definitely see that. So after you graduated from school, you went on and you started your career at EF Hutton and you became this uh, top producer for UBS, Smith Barney, and what it's today, uh, Morgan Stanley. So you, you were successful in this world and you had experience working for these di- different institutions. Can you talk about your experience at these different organizations and in the corporate world in general? Yes. I mean, I had, it was a great place for me to build a career, a starting point in the advisory business. I just reached a point where the direction that the firms that I worked on for generally had the same business philosophy and they wanted their business done in a particular way. And over the years, when I first went to work for EF Hutton, that was such an entrepreneurial firm that would let you have a wide path in the way you dealt with things. And Part of it is the regulatory changes from the mid-80s when I got started up until 2010 when I left the brokerage business. That's part of it. Uh, but the insertion of the banks into the brokerage businesses really changed the philosophy of the way those brokerage firms operated. And that just continued to create big issues for me. I was felt like many times I was just a number for them. My clients were just a number. And in many cases, the number had dollar signs in front of it. And I always viewed my role as having been hired by the client to be an advocate for the client's position, given my understanding being superior to their understanding. 
And I got paid for that. Well, the firms really wanted me to do more than that. They wanted me to sell the more profitable securities or, you know, to do, to do things in a way that would extract more fees from my client. And it wasn't as though my business wasn't profitable. I was in the top 5% of my peer group for both profitability and revenue. They just always wanted it to be more. And I just didn't feel good about squeezing clients that hard. And I'm kind of an open book. I throw my cards down on the table real quick and say, this is how this works. And here's what you should be doing. And here's what you shouldn't be doing. And ultimately, that's why very high net worth clients hire me, because in the end, they just want to be relieved of the responsibility of having to make their own decisions. They want to be told what to do. And the more advocate minded you are, the greater position you're going to have with that client. So that's the spot that I needed to get to. And that required me to get out of the brokerage business. And do you think that the way that these firms, you know, play the game that you just described, do you think that's impacting them? And, and, and is that why we're seeing more people kind of go away from, you know, the traditional uh, private wealth managers and they, they start doing investing in on different platforms or on their own? I think it's having a, a very large bearing uh, for the past. I don't know what the statistic is. It might be 15 years there have been net outflows at the big brokerage firms. The clients and assets are leaving in greater numbers than they are arriving. Now, most of that is picked up by the independent space where I am in, in the business now, which has been growing at 30 or 40% a year for more than a decade. So a lot of advisors are leaving the brokerage business because they find themselves in irreconcilable positions. And the bigger your practice gets, the more irreconcilable it becomes. Uh, so I just reached a point where I wasn't willing to play their game. And I thought that I had a strong enough relationship with my clients that I could ask them to try something new with me. And I re-registered as a fiduciary who only earns fees. I cannot earn a commission or a markup of any type. And that puts me in a position of being able to advocate for my client's best interest far better than I would ever be able to do on a brokerage platform. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it creates better alignment and, and better trust, I imagine, with your clients. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So w- when you look at the markets today and, you know, just you know, we're, we're in a very interesting place, like sometimes the economics don't even make sense anymore, but we're, we're in this spot where say people have money, they want to invest, they want to go in. The stock market is high. Um, it could be argued that it's high. You know, you're looking at some valuations that are that have skyrocketed. You have bonds where interest rates go up, and you know the bonds are obviously going to go down in value. You have the threat of inflation. You have home prices on the rise. I mean, you have all these things happening. Like it, it seems like for the average investor, there would be a ton of confusion. How do you know it's right? And what do you do in an environment like this? That's an excellent question. The uh, picture is pretty murky, as you just described. I tend to fall back on truths that are perpetual. And one of those truths that is perpetual is that stocks go up 81% of the time. Now, that's not on a daily basis. And some days are bigger than others. And on a daily basis, yes, it's, uh, it's a 50-50 toss-up, whether the market's going to be up or down. Although, the last couple of years, you would think it's probably at least 80% of the time it's been going up. That's not normally how the math works. But over long time periods, uh, we went back in my office, 50 years of data back looking at any 12-month time period back for 50 years. And there was an 81% odds that the stock market was going to generate a positive rate of return in any of those 12-month time periods. So 
back to your issue about the stock market seems high right now. Well, it seemed high a year ago and it's higher today than it was then. And it may very well be higher a year from now. And you bring up a good point about the bond market because that's really a, the most compelling alternative, albeit quite a bit safer than the stock market. But the 10-year treasury hit a 146 today, 1.4%, which you could also pay tax at up to 40% on that. So you would end up with less than a 1% rate of return for committing your money for a decade. Uh, that just seems like the really overpriced choice to me, not the stock market. So we, uh, we rely on that 81% of the time being profitable to drive our methodologies. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. What do you think is the biggest mistake that the average investor makes? Do you see some patterns out there as yes. you work with different yeah. individuals? It's hard to, to rank them in priority. I'll tell you the ones that I see repeat themselves the most often. One is people don't know the fees that they pay. They have some number in their mind that they think they heard one time. They don't know any way to analyze it. And I can tell most of your listeners out there, whatever they, the number is that they think it is, it's going to be higher than that. And the reason why is that most Wall Street operations have a whole nother payment system that's going on behind the scenes that investors don't understand. So that's issue number one. And issue number two is people go into it thinking that it's all going to be rosy and wonderful. And as soon as they get thrown a curve, they freak out and want to liquidate they go into salvation mode at the worst possible time. Warren Buffett says the best time to buy is when there's blood in the streets. But when it's your blood that's in the streets, you're thinking about liquidating. And that is the problem that most investors have is they think that they can build some kind of a system that gives them all or some of the upside. They want the downside to be owned by somebody else. And I'm here to tell you with the 81% uh, upside, 81% odds of success, being the backbone of it, people who approach it as I only want to be in for the good part are totally missing the boat. And that leads to the third problem. Third problem is people don't understand the taxes caused by the changes in strategy that they think are helping them all the while it's eroding their compounded return, which could have been tax-free if they would have just stayed put. And so not only do people make mistakes and harm themselves economically, the process harms them too because they're creating taxes, which erodes compound and return. And most people are completely oblivious about how the tax code is written. And if you fully understood it, there would be a definite path that you would be executing your strategies down. But many people go offline and try to uh, you know, chart a new course when tax strategy says don't do it. So those are the three most powerful negative contributors to performance for most investors that I see. That's interesting because um, you and I both know that trying to time the market is impossible. You know, I mean, nobody, nobody knows, knows what's coming next. Exactly. 
Yeah. So, I, and I think, um, you know, having that long-term orientation is, is so critical. Yeah. And when it comes to advisors, why don't more advisors, if they're, if they're seeing these net outflows from their portfolios that they manage, why don't more of them go to the fee structure? I mean, can they well, argue and say, well, look, Gil, Hey, we're actually <laughs> aligned with our clients because we put them in things that earn high returns because we want high commissions. Yeah. Um, I mean, why do you think they don't do that? Well, that's one of them is you, what you just described as self-justification. So yes, that exists. It's really scary to make the move, to make the move that I made. And I'll be frank, it took me 16 years to make the move. I knew in 1994 that it was probably the best thing for me. I just didn't think that my $50 million worth of client assets were big enough and reliable enough for me to throw all my oranges out of my cart on the street and hope I could get them back packed into my cart again. And it's extremely scary uh, and when I got to $100 million worth of assets, I had a, another excuse. And in the end, I was just scared of the ecosystem that I didn't understand. You know, the, the devil that you do know is less scary than the devil that you don't know. And I experienced some of that. But the, another saying in the business is that you'll stay in your current situation until the pain of leaving is less than the pain of staying. And ultimately, that's what drove me to start my own firm. I had uh, some financial trauma in 2008 and 2009. Not only was I invested in stocks and my clients were invested in stocks, the market loses 58% of its market value over a 15-month time period, but my UBS stock options got completely obliterated. And so I I was catching it in multiple layers, and I thought, you know, the real reason why UBS stock is down was not because the retail business that I was in was falling apart. It was mortgages. It was investment banking. It was other things that the firm had that were tanking the equity value of the company, of which I had should have had no exposure to, but the entire company was having financial issues that I was a participant in. And that sort of drove a wedge between me and my employer. And I decided that the time was right for me to get my ducks in a row and, and leave the brokerage business entirely. So that's what I did sort of under, not, a, not under duress, but under just the convergence of a lot of different issues. Sure. And, and when you look back on your career, I mean, just your overall life, I mean, you're, you're ranked as a top financial advisor. What do you attribute to your success? Like, are there certain tricks or habits or patterns that you have that allow you to be successful? Well, there would be a lot of them, I think, but the first one is truth. If you deal in truth and you deal in transparency, people are going to trust you. And trust is the number one thing in my line of work. Now, after doing this for 37 years, I have a fair amount of knowledge that comes with that. Part of that knowledge comes from the fact that I'm inquisitive. I want to know how things work. Back to the precision issue, I want to figure out how does a mutual fund work? What's in those dark corners that nobody else can see? Well, you do that for 37 years, you're going to pretty much figure out how that ecosystem is built. And that being the case, you can chart a different course that leads to low taxes, low management fees, all the things that clients give away by not understanding it could contribute to compounded return. And you know, on a million dollars of starting value over 30 years, if you redirect your rate of return by a half a percent, that's another million dollars over 30 years. People lose complete sight of that math. And so those are the things that we pay attention to. We also have a very large tax emphasis with regard to how we manage client money. That's, a, I think, a big contributing factor to our accounts being large and trusting in the way we do things. 
Absolutely. I can agree with you more. Let's talk about behavioral finance. What does that phrase even mean? And how have you seen it applied in, in your business world? To me, it's our inherent biases in play. And most people have inherent biases that they are fight or flight wiring is one of the things that makes us fearful easily. And we are also greedy. If you look at what's been going on with these meme stocks and AMC movie theater stocks going bonkers and GameStop going from $3 to $300 in a matter of weeks, it's some of the crazy things uh, that people do with their money because they are greedy also create harmful behavioral patterns. We have biases that confirm. We look at data and we see what it is that confirms our other beliefs. So that's called confirmation bias. We overestimate our knowledge of topics that are far more complicated than we understand. You know, Thomas Sowell said, it takes a fair amount of knowledge and introspection to understand how poorly you understand the topic at hand. Uh, (laughs) And so that manifests itself in lots of different ways. People go off half cocked thinking that they're helping themselves and they have no idea the other damage that they're doing to themselves. And and about 60% of my book, which is on Amazon called Foolish, is about the behavioral process of what clients do. Because if the market's going up or down, it really doesn't matter what you do with your money, how to participate in that is what matters because that's what generates results. And so, um, you know, those people have to be aware of those biases and, uh, and whether they have a bad relationship with their money, which we also discuss in the book. Well, let's talk about your book and let's switch gears. You know, writing a book is a, a big endeavor. I've done two myself and mm-hmm. I want to congratulations. Know, like, thank you. Uh, why did you decide to write a book? Um, lots of reasons. You know, I wanted to write a book when I was in the brokerage business and my firm had a fit. Uh, they wouldn't even let me write newsletters that would update clients about various things because they, while they said the things that I was saying were true, they just didn't want it said. Uh, well, you can imagine what kind of wedge that would drive between me and my firm when I'm Mr. Transparency. Uh, they wouldn't allow me to be transparent. Uh, so I just had a lot of things. And frankly, I, when I originally embarked on the book, I was just going to tell everybody how everything worked. Here's how a mutual fund works. Here's how you should use it. Here's a, how a hedge fund works. And here's the good parts and bad parts about it. That's what the book was going to be about. And as I got into it, all of that stuff ended up on the chopping block and ended up on the floor. What I found that I thought was really insightful were all of the things that I understood about the inner machinations of the brokerage industry. How do they make their money? Where are all those nooks and crannies? Where are all the gotchas? Where are the things that they say one thing, but there's really something else going on behind the scenes that they're trying to convince you does not exist. There's a lot of cloak and dagger. There's a lot. I don't want to call it deceptive. It's just uh, constructive verbiage that leads to the outcome that they are looking for. So it's not fully truthful. And um, the brokerage industry operates on a standard of care for clients that gives them legal insulation against claim as long as the vehicles that they were recommending were suitable for the client. Well, suitable, you know, how would you like to have some suitable sushi? You know, right. I don't like I don't like suitable. I want best. And that being the case, I had to be in a business environment that required me to choose what was best for my clients. So anyhow, that's kind of my kind of my thoughts about it. So tell me this. Let's just say I'm sitting here and I say, Gil, you know, 
I, I love the sound of your book. I just, I don't read. I don't have time to read. Give me the punchline. What is the punchline? What is the core message you're trying to communicate to people through your book? Uh, people should gain a better understanding of how the system works. And if they don't want to do that, they should hire an advocate. It I'm not saying it has to be me. I'm just saying somebody in my business model, an independent advisor that custodies money at Fidelity or Schwab or Vanguard, who is a fiduciary, that person is more worthy of trust than most brokerages where you have a, an advisor who is not required to give you a fiduciary standard of care. It's just simply going to lead to better outcomes. So that's predominantly the message that I'm, I'm giving people. And I'm also giving them a lot of information about their own behavioral biases that will do them more harm than good. And identifying them is 90% of the problem. Uh, how you fix it later is really the easy part of the solution. About 60% of the book is about those monkeys we have on our backs, those voices that we hear, the if a woulda, shoulda, coulda, mighta, and lack of understanding about all the other choices I could have made at the same time. Uh, so a lot of that is brought up in the book. So the first 40% of the book is about how Wall Street operates and shows a flashlight into those dark corners. And the back 60% of the book is the behavioral issues that people have that I have seen through tens of thousands of conversations with people managing billions of dollars over the past 37 years. Those patterns repeat themselves and people could do a whole lot better if they understood more about themselves and were more honest with themselves about their shortcomings. That sounds very interesting. If you think about, because like, you've been talking about the system being rigged, right? And people being overworked by the system. What are some strategies that investors can take in order to avoid being taken advantage of or you know, losing money or you know, missing out on the compounded interest that you talked about? Number one on the list would be determine what it is that you want out of this. Is your motivation to invest so that you can stand up on the tee box and brag to your buddies about how you got a thousand shares of Tesla 4,000% ago. Is that what you're looking for? Are you looking for the affirmation and adoration of your friends and family? Is it your ego? Is it the bad relationship you had with dad and dad never thought you were smart enough? Was it that you didn't get picked for the little league team and you have things to prove? We see those things come up over and over again when we dig deep and make people accountable to the demons that they have that are causing unhealthy thought patterns about what it is that they're trying to accomplish. Because if you don't know what you're trying to get out of it, you're probably not going to find it. Uh, if results are what you're looking for, a whole different type of pattern of behavior is going to emerge. And what, that would generally be low cost and low tax friction, where you would look at the things that you can control and you would want to control them down to the nth degree. And all the other variables are the same variables that everybody else is dealing with. You're going to have an inherent advantage if you compress your costs and you compress your taxes, because most everybody else does not do that. And the marketplace is going to affect them the same way it's going to affect you based on your exposure. And so it's those, it's the low hanging fruit of understanding how those behavioral biases make us choose things that are harmful to us in the end, oftentimes because we don't really know what it is that we're after when we start the process. 
Yeah, we don't know what we're after. And we, we also we're not aware of these biases that we even have, right? That's right. They're like unconscious bias that we have. And I see that all the time. I mean, even when it comes to like strategy and whatnot, um, you know, people are just not, they're just not objective about themselves. Exactly. And that's, that's where a partner in this journey can really be valuable. Somebody who's insightful, who will call you out and say, oh man, you, you got some baggage there. Let's go back and dig that out. And, uh, Let's figure out what it is that, you know, is causing you this hang up. And how do clients respond if you're objective like that? I mean, if you say how it is, are you ever worried that you're going to offend a client who's paying a, a big fee and that you're going to lose them or do you have no problem? I use, that? I use yeah, that's a really insightful question. Uh, I used to be very concerned about that. I don't want to say we have a waiting list, but we've ratcheted up our minimum many, many times. I'm 62 years old. I could have retired when I was... 55. I don't do this for the money. I do this because I like it. I am affirmed by it. I think I'm pretty good at it. Our services are in relatively high demand. And I'm going to tell the truth whether somebody likes it or not. Now, I'm going to try to deliver those messages in the way that's least offensive. I'm going to try to coach somebody into a more constructive behavior pattern. I'm trying to do my job correctly. But if somebody is just too stubborn to admit their own problems, they're probably going to be better off doing business with another advisor who is only going to confirm them in the ways that they have been confirmed in the past, which is exactly what has led to their problem that they are sitting across the desk from me to begin with. They're unhappy about what somebody else has done when they're really unaware that all that person was doing was affirming that client in un productive thought patterns so that that person could get paid. I'm not in this for that game. And so we tend to be a little bit more frank and try to be helpful. But in the end, if they don't like being truthful with themselves, they're probably not going to like me being truthful with them either. So sure. And obviously you're passionate about finance, but you're also passionate about something else. And, that, and that's woodworking. I understand that you engage in a certain like art form called segmentation. Is that where you got the name of your firm from? And explain it is. more about this woodworking hobby of yours. Well, back to the issue of precision. I really like to see contrasting colors, much like a checkerboard or a really precise chess board uh, that's been put together and is just manufactured to the nth degree where all the corners fit just right. Everything is just super precise with the way it goes together. And when you, you can build very exotic patterns when you're using contrasting woods, and if they're all cut to the same dimension, you can assemble them in such a way that you can really see how precise it was all assembled. Uh, the demonstration of that precision is what I like to see. And I, have done some inlaid bowls that have 500 pieces to them, and they all fit together in a super precise pattern using extremely exotic materials like ebony and maple and uh, Hollywood and other things. And so anyhow, that's what I like. I've sort of morphed some of my sculpting and artwork into painting. So I'm doing uh, oil and acrylics and, you know, just... The older I get, the less physical I want to be. And so some of my projects, I've built a couple of uh, dining room tables that got a little large for me. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just dealing with smaller projects nowadays. 
Do you think there's any crossover or like correlation between woodworking and finance uh, when it comes to like planning and skill and, and approach and strategy and everything else? Absolutely. And we do segment our client portfolios and we look at things in silos. Uh, so we run three equity strategies so that we can be an expert in those strategies. And then we have all billion dollars of our client money is generally connected to those strategies one way or another. And we run giant spreadsheets that help us control how each client is participating in those strategies on down to managing the individual tax lots for each individual client. So they have the best tax effect of participating in our strategy. So it's back to this precision. I mean, imagine a billion dollars in a thousand different account numbers for 200 families all with different tax lots, all with different, I mean, the spreadsheet of that would just be mind blowing. Uh, and so we've just orchestrated a, a way to look at all that so that we can try to turn the system to our client's advantage. But it's really not that much different than turning a bowl where all the angles of all the pieces had to be cut just right so that the, the pattern completed itself with no gaps. And so that's essentially how we view, how I view my client's money. And I thought it was apropos uh, since segmentation was such a uh, important part of the way I had expressed myself, uh, I do it at work too. Now, and, and I, I think that's very smart. And I, I think there's definitely like an art and science to what you do. What would your counter be to somebody who said, Hey, look, Gil, I get what you're saying. I get the value of a financial advisor, but I'm just going to take my money and invest in a diversified index fund. Is that I think, a bad strategy? Absolutely not. That is a fantastic strategy. It's going to be a little lonely, however. There's going to be the moment that you wake up in the middle of the night on uh, March the 22nd of last year with the stock market in complete free fall. And you wonder, am I really doing this correctly? What are the tax implications of a Roth IRA? Should I be doing a Roth IRA conversion at the very moment that the stock market is down by 33%? There's all of these other things that people uh, would have phantoms about that if they don't understand the way that the system could be engaged to their benefit, one, they'll never optimize it for themselves. And two, they will be haunted by the wondering whether there is something that they could have done, whether there's something that should be doing. Our business is, for, is to be the delegate that all of that angst gets deposited on because we understand that system. And all we have to do is understand what the client wants, and we can turn that to the client's advantage and relieve them of the burden. And the cost is not that high. On our billion dollars worth of assets, our average fee is 56 basis points. 0.56% is really all we're getting out of it. And that's pretty much the total cost of operating an account. And our $100 million accounts might be paying half of that. Uh, so it's a very small price to pay for the peace of mind to understand that things are being taken care of without you having to worry about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's smart. And, and having that objective, independent you know, advisor in your corner, I mean, I can see how that there's huge value in that. Otherwise, you're, you're approaching it on your own. That's right. And, and there's so many other implications with all the decisions that we make on a regular basis. I, I think having somebody who's expert in that area can be very beneficial. Yeah. When you think about like the headwinds that we're facing here, I mean, you have uh, proposed tax changes, which can be, you know, can have serious consequences or implications. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you have inflationary pressures. 
Uh, you have, you yep. know, all these other things that um, the world is uh, approaching and, and dealing with. Are you bullish about the future or explain kind of your perspective looking forward, especially to those who are listening and maybe they haven't had much experience in the market when, you know, things were down in the eighties with Black Monday and everything else and the recessions and, and other, other things, other market swings that have occurred. Provide some perspective of the future and, and what's your take on it? I, I worry more more about society at large. I think we have a general disdain for truth. I think we have a disregard for fact. I think we have uh, forces at work that are trying to subvert much of what has made America great. That's the stuff that bothers me. I don't worry about interest rates going up. I don't worry about uh, the stock market falling apart. Capitalism will fix that. I really worry at this point, whether capitalism is going to survive. So it's uh, the things that bother me are much bigger issues than just whether the stock market's going to rise or fall. I can tell you that the majority of the times in the past when I've gotten nervous and tried to hedge myself, I have done far more harm than good. I have learned my lesson over and over and over again. I should just keep engaged with market risk and let the marketplace work itself out. And if I rely on the fact that stocks go up 81% of the time, you know, it only takes 50-50 for me to win the game. And at 81%, I'm going to win the game. And if you look backwards, presidential assassination attempt in 1981, rampant inflation, disinflation, interest rates at 19%, interest rates at zero, you know what? Stock market's gone higher and higher and higher and higher. Yes, it's run into some issues, 87 market crash, 98, 99, 2000, there were problems. Okay, take all that into consideration. What other vehicle could you have? You know, the stock market, when it crashed in, in 1987, I think it got down to under 2000. And it's, what, 17 times that today? That's pretty darn good rate of return. And it could have been mostly tax-free if you would have owned an index fund or, you know, something more passive, taking an active role creates a lot of friction for investors that they don't understand. And that's assuming they are correct in their assumption about the future. We are not always correct. So sure. what about what about career advice? So you kind of painted your your picture about the future and I like that. What about career advice for people? Maybe they're starting out and they're wondering you know, am I heading in the right direction? Should I be worried if I'm heading in the right direction? Or maybe some people feel stuck. Some people just, they, they get anxious about just their careers. Do you believe everything just works out? Do you feel like sometimes you have to make big, bold moves? I mean, talk a little bit about like your career and provide a little bit of insight for those who may be listening. Thank you. Um, the biggest mistakes that I've made in my career is not being reliant upon my own skills early enough in my career. I should have gotten out of the brokerage business 15 years before I did. Uh, now, I did it when I was 51, and, and I had a lot of knowledge that probably helped me a lot. And yes, I left UBS and took $250 million worth of assets from the firm. And here we are not quite 11 years later, and I've got not quite $1.1 billion of client assets under management. So yes, it is uh, more than four times the size of my practice when I was at UBS. Another thing is that I've aged another 10 years, and my peer group is now 10 years more affluent. And when people ask me questions, they're not asking me $10,000 questions. They're asking me million-dollar questions. So my age 
and stage in life has also led to asset flows into my firm just simply because I'm getting older, not because I'm the world's smartest guy. Uh, so I would encourage people to be investing in themselves, investing in their knowledge, contemplative about where they are in the marketplace and try to figure out a way to improve on your employer's way of doing things and compete with your employer and build a system that is better. Build the better mousetrap. Be all, constantly be looking for the disadvantage of the way you're doing it and figure out a way to fix that and try to parlay that into a business that you can own the stock of. Yes, my income is up dramatically since I left UBS, but the value of my investment in my company is 30 times what my UBS stock was when it blew up in you know, 2008. That's, that's the real terminal value of my business. And when I went into this, I was really kind of unaware of the magnitude of what I was dealing with. Uh, so I would encourage everybody to be more entrepreneurial. And entrepreneurialism is not for everybody. At least find yourself in a firm run by somebody else who is entrepreneurial and you know, tag along. That's what I would, that's the advice I would give. Let me ask you this, because I, I think this could be, you know, it's a, it's a very serious topic. I've, I've experienced it just in, in my life and the people that I interact with, but sometimes people become so attached with money, whether it's like an identity thing. I mean, there's so many things that are, are tied to it. And I've seen that people- is Pandora. That is Pandora's box right there. You just sure. you just opened the lid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So here comes your question. You know, so people, you know, they become so attached to it, their identity, their self-esteem, their self-worth, everything. And I've seen people amass, you know, fortunes. I've also seen people, you know, lose everything. And unfortunately, some people take their lives in the process because they just feel like, oh my gosh, I mm. lost my business and I was my business or they just can't cope with it. Right. Yeah. And maybe they yeah. don't take their life, but maybe they just go into these deep, deep, dark depressions if they lose everything. Yeah. Talk about this and, and maybe provide a little bit of perspective and hope for anybody who may be in a spot where they've lost a significant amount of wealth, whether it's recently or over the years, is it possible to rebuild Talk, talk about this whole journey for those who have um, experienced that, whether it's their business has lost a, a ton of money lately because of COVID and the pandemic or their personal wealth has gone down. I mean, you, you experienced when, you know, you lost a lot of money at UBS. Yeah. I mean, talk yeah. about this and the hope of rebuilding and is that possible? Well, there's a couple of issues in there. You know, yes, I do see people that have bad relationships with their money. I see a lot of scorekeeping. I see where people tabulate the value of their net worth and they gain affirmation from going online and watching their accounts rise and fall. And well, they like the affirmation comes from it rising, not falling. Sure. <laughs> um, but equating that to their value is a very treacherous path. I know, and in the book, we get into this about an unhealthy relationship with money. And what the illustration that I gave is that many times I view my clientele, like we're in a church setting and there's this aisle down the middle and I have a completely different set of personalities on the right side and a completely different set of personalities on the left. And I have very different rates of return on the right side and on the left. So what is it that causes these people to separate in this perceived church setting? I, for decades, I thought that it was ambivalence. I thought that the people who would take more risk just didn't care as much about the outcome. They weren't as addicted to their money. Uh, the people on the right-hand side is the way I'm viewing it. 
that had the low rates of return. They're the ones that have to have high bond holdings. They're the ones that, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Caddyshack, where Ted Knight is getting ready to make the $100,000 putt, and he pulls out his putter, and he pulls it up to his face, and he goes, oh, Billy, 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 Billy. And he starts talking to his putter because the enormity of the event that he's found himself in just causes this deep insecurity within him. And I see people act that way with their own money. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I have just got to get this right. That is such an unhealthy relationship. The person who is free with their money, who just makes arbitrary decisions, normally ends up with a lot better rate of return than the one who's overthought the entire process. And what I came to realize is that it really is about your perception of scarcity versus abundance. If you view your situation as scarce, you're going to find yourself making the most mistakes and having to have the low return vehicles that give you high affirmation that you cannot lose it. And the people who view their world from an abundance mindset are the ones that deal with their money loosely. They're very charitable givers to their church or synagogue. Those people have a very tend to have a very healthy relationship with their money. They are fantastic risk takers, and ultimately they run circles around the people who have a poor relationship with their money through their view of scarcity. I like that. And I like adopting that abundance mindset. And I think that's so critical to remember because yeah, if we think scarcity, if we're not grateful for the things that we're fortunate enough to have, then uh, we're, we're always looking for more. And it, it can, that's uh, exactly right. Could create a very bad. There's an, like there's so. never enough of more. Exactly. Yep. Well said. Gil, um, where can people find your book? Go to Amazon. The, the title of the book is Foolish. The subtitle is How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System. It's a yellow book with a ladder on the front of it, de- depicting somebody climbing up that ladder. So if you go to Amazon, you can find it under Foolish. We also write a blog. People can sign up for free. We write about these topics two times a month, one time a month, something like that. They can go to segmentwm.com. That's self segment wealth management. Uh, so segmentwm.com forward slash blog. They can sign up right there. The blogs are free. You know, take a look at, at my website. Some of my artwork is on gilbomgarden.com. Uh, none of it is for sale. It's just some, some of the things that I like to do and other philosophical things are on that website. So go to Gil Baumgarten with one L and um, take a look there. Okay. That sounds great. Gil, you have a lot of depth to you. Um, it's been a very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for your time and uh, keep doing the good work that you're doing out there. I, I know you're impacting a lot of people's lives. So thank you. I've enjoyed being here and thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect all the best. Thank you.